0: We have a brand new book, the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. This week's Parsha, Parsha's Devarim, has 105 verses and two mitzvos. And it's a very different kind of narrative. Moses is five weeks before he's passing, and he's going to give us a 3 partial long speech that constitutes his last will and testament, his final message to the nation. Now, the Ramban... He gives an introduction to the book of Deuteronomy to the book of Devarim and he breaks down the book into three main components. One of the names of Devarim is Mishneh Torah, which means the repetition of Torah because there are many mitzvot that we've read about in the past that are repeated over here in this last book, the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. And it is interesting to note says the Ramban which mitzvot are specifically mentioned over here for a second time, and those tend to be the mitzvot that are most pertinent to the nation at their current juncture. Moses is about to pass immediately after his passing. They're going to enter the land, and therefore the mitzvot that are most pertinent to the entering of the land, they're the ones that are going to be repeated, either with added explanation or with warnings about the consequences of violating these mitzvot. He also notes that, The book of Devarim does not repeat the kohanic mitzvos of the book of Leviticus. And the reason for that is because the kohanim, they're so adept, they're so skilled, and therefore they don't need to have the laws that are pertinent to them to be repeated. So that's one component. One component of the book is the repetition of the many mitzvos that we were given previously. In addition, there is a second component that is new mitzvos. Not mitzvos that were commanded for the first time now, Rather, mitzvot that were commanded to Moses at Sinai, as the whole Torah was given to him at Sinai, but they weren't conveyed to the earlier generation, either because they're very rare, like the laws of Yibum, Leverite marriage, we'll read about in a few weeks, or because they only kick in once you enter the land. Regardless, these mitzvot are new, we haven't read about them previously, but now, as Moses is about to depart from the nation, he's going to tell him these laws. And finally, another component of the book is the rebuke and the critique of their behavior hitherto. Moses is about to pass, and we're going to begin the book with his criticism and his rebuke of the nation and their behavior over the course of these previous 40 years. And an element of that is to be reminded of God's compassion and God's kindness, despite the fact that the nation stumbled, had so many blunders throughout the 40-year sojourn in the wilderness— Still, God forgave them. God absorbed, so to speak, their intransigence, and they're still standing as a nation. Moreover, the rebuke is to also urge them to not revert back to their previous behavior. They had mistakes, but hopefully they'll learn from their mistakes. Once they enter the land, they'll make sure that they don't repeat those blunders of your. And as a result of the layout of the book, the early parts of Deuteronomy certainly have a very different feel to it. The Talmud explains that this, in effect, these words are the monologue of Moses. Subsequently, God tells Moses, okay, write down your monologue verbatim. It's going to be included in the book, but therefore it has a little bit of a different feel and the Bible critics have seized upon the fact that Duran has a different feel to maybe question the legitimacy of the Torah. But we know by reading the very first sentences that these are the words of Moses that God subsequently said, okay, include it in the Torah. And it's going to begin, the first four chapters are a retrospective of the story of the Jewish nation over the past 40 years since the Exodus. And it is really interesting, and we'll do this throughout the whole Parsha, to see which stories... That have happened to the Jewish people since the middle of the book of Exodus. Which stories are highlighted? Which stories are mentioned but only are hinted at? Which stories are elaborated upon? Which stories do we find new bits about? And of course, there are some stories or some episodes that seem to be omitted entirely. So that's the introductions that we have here. Let's begin the Parsha. So I want to read the first five verses to get a sense of this very long and cryptic introduction to Moshe's message to the nation, and then we'll put in context with the commentary of Rashi. These are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel on the other side of the Jordan concerning the wilderness, concerning the Arabah, opposite the Sea of Reeds, between Paran and Tolvon and Laban and Chatzarot and Dizahab. That's the very first verse. 11 days from Choreb by way of Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. It was in the 40th year, in the 11th month, in the first of the month, when Moses spoke to the children of Israel, according to everything that God commanded him to them, after he had smitten Sichon, king of Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, or O, king of Bashan, who dwelt in Ashtaroth in Adre, on the other side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began explaining this Torah saying. So these five verses are a very long and seemingly cryptic introduction to the message of, that Moshe is going to convey to the people. So when we read Rashi, we find out that this In effect, these five verses, while it looks like it's an introduction, it really contains a very deep and powerful message, not only for the people listening to it, but for us reading it today. And we would say that if we wanted the Torah's perspective on how to convey critique and rebuke, here, in the words of Moses, we find a masterclass on how exactly to do that. Criticism is a very powerful And very potent tool, and in fact there's a mitzvah to criticize people that are behaving wrongly, but it's also a very dangerous, a potentially volatile tool that could be misused and could actually have a boomerang effect where the opposite of what you intend actually results from the critique. And here we see how Moses criticized the Jewish people via the lenses that Rashi gives us. So it begins, these are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel. Rashi tells us right away that the places that it lists, the wilderness, the Arabah, Sea of Reeds, Paran, Tophel, Laban, Chatzoros, Dizahav, these are not just the location of the message. These are the content of the message. Moses wanted to convey critique to the Jewish people for their behavior, but he did it in a way that the honor of the people was preserved. He allowed them to save face And he only mentioned the locations where the blunders happened, where the sins happened. And that was his way of reminding, of invoking the story without shaming the people. So he begins, in the wilderness. What happened in the wilderness? He tells us that is a reference to the time the Jewish people complained. Why did we have to leave Egypt? We could have died there. We don't need to die here. This all the way at the beginning in Exodus chapter 16. When it says in the Arabah, that's a reference to the sin with the daughters of Moab that resulted in mass idolatry and in the plague that we read about a few weeks ago in the book of Numbers. Opposite the Sea of Reeds, well, that refers to when they complained by the Sea of Reeds, there's not sufficient graves in Egypt, and they rebelled against God in that location. Between Paran, between Tofol and Lavan, Rashi explains this is references to them complaining about the manna, the sin of the supplies, the rebellion of Korach. They didn't take the lesson of the punishment of Miriam home. And finally, zahav. that is a reference to the sin of the golden calf. The Hebrew word for gold is Zahav. Dizahav may might mean too much gold. They had too much gold and that led him astray. And again, the very first verse While if you read it simply, it seems like it's just giving us the coordinates of this message, Rashi reveals to us that there's a very powerful but veiled criticism that Moshe is leveling against the Jewish people, enumerating all the various places where they had blundered. And then he says, it's 11 days from Chorev. Chorev, of course, is Mount Sinai. The Jewish people, 50 days after the Exodus, they're at Mount Sinai, they get the Torah. And 11 days later... More seemingly, they're at a different place called Kadesh Barnea. And Rashi tells us that, in fact, if you do the math, it turns out that the Jewish people made it from Chorev to Kadesh Barnea in three days, even though it was an 11-day journey. Meaning that God had kindness to the Jewish people. He wanted to accelerate their trip to the land to get them in there swiftly, and therefore he made it so that an 11-day trip would be done in three days only. And again, what Moshe is telling them, you had it all. Right after Sinai, you could have gone right in. You could have waltzed in. It was an 11-day trip. God accelerated it. You were there in three days and you had it in your fingertips, but you lost it. Again, it's criticism and it's veiled and it's doubly veiled by talking about the length of the trip. And what that portends for the attitude that God had towards them at the time, he's not directing the criticism at them, he's only hinting at it, they get the message. Moreover, verse 3, it says it was the 40th to the 11th month, the first of the month, and we know that this is 37 days before Moses' passing. And he's in effect criticizing them for what happened 40 years prior. And the obvious question is, if you have something to say, why don't you say it earlier? So Rashi tells us is that Moses took a page out of Jacob's book. Jacob also wanted to criticize his children, but he waited till he was on his deathbed and he told Levi about the stolen craft that they had taken from his brother Esav. And in addition, of course, he criticized his eldest son, Ruvain for his impetuosity and his behavior with interfering with his sleeping arrangements. And similarly, Moses says, well, if I'm going to criticize the Jewish people, I too will follow Jacob's example. I'm not going to criticize them right away. I'm going to wait till I'm, so to speak, on my deathbed, and then I'll criticize the Jewish people. And Rashi tells us that there's four different reasons why someone should only criticize someone else before they're about to die. Number one, to not criticize multiple times. If you do it earlier, maybe you'll come to doing it a second time. Number two, that you shouldn't see them in an ongoing way, and every time you see them, they're going to be embarrassed. Number three, to not harbor ill will against them. Number four, that they shouldn't abandon you. Rash tells a very powerful thing. Jacob said that had he criticized Reuven earlier, Reuven would have abandoned him and joined the team, the army of Aesov. What this tells us is that, yes, criticism is necessary, it's very powerful, but it could lead to alienation. If you don't approach it delicately, it could have the opposite effect, and instead of being constructive, it's going to be destructive. And therefore Moses is waiting to the end of his life when all the concerns are not... As present, and even then, he's treading very carefully, very gingerly. Moreover, he mentions that this is after he had smitten Sichon, king of the Amorites, and owed, king of Bashan. Why is that necessary? Rashi tells us again, if Moses had simply criticized the Jewish people, they would say, well, what have you done for us? You haven't done for us anything. And therefore, Moshe rehashes Specifically, the things that he did for them, he's on your side. He fought the wars for you. He conquered the fearsome and mighty enemies, Sichon and Ode, and therefore, you know, he's on your side. He's working tirelessly on your behalf, and therefore, maybe you should listen to what he has to say. You know, he's in it for your best interest. And of course, the obvious question is, you know, does Moshe really need to rehash that? Isn't it obvious? He did everything for the Jewish people. Why does he need to wait until right after he smote Sichon and Og? And the answer is that invariably, when you rebuke, when you criticize someone, they automatically get defensive and they're going to lash back. Really? You're just saying this for this and this reason. People tend to lose perspective. They recoil and they lash out against you. And unless it is so abundantly and undeniably and incontrovertibly clear that the person has your best interest in mind, they're not going to accept it. And therefore, the message is both veiled and it's delayed and it's done specifically in an orientation, in an environment where Moses' intentions and his attitude towards the Jewish people and the goodwill that he has built up is undeniable And only then does he dispense his critique for the nation and, of course, with the hope that they take the right message, the constructive message, and they don't just feel like, oh, Moses is trying to get back at us. Oh, he just wants to make us feel bad. They accept it in the way it was intended. And, of course, the lesson for us is, you know, we think that maybe if we criticize someone, it's a good thing. And we should detail their sins and highlight exactly what they did wrong, lambast them for it. And we, so we see here that Moses doesn't do that. He doesn't blindside them. He talks very gently and very sparingly, dropping only hints and treading again with tremendous delicacy around this issue. And I want to add another point. The people that are listening to the message, they're not even the people that did those sins. They're the children of those people who did those sins. Nevertheless, Moshe is so careful. And of course, I think the lesson for us is that constructive criticism can only be done once you have these necessary preconditions. The person knows you're acting on their behalf. You're, you're interested. You're invested in their well-being. You do it in a very gentle way, in a non-threatening way, and not in a way that's going to inspire, to invoke the backlash and the reaction that is almost necessary with any sort of interaction between someone giving rebuke and someone hearing the rebuke that they're given. So that's the introduction, and Moses begins explaining the Torah. Rashi tells us that this is his mission. The mission of this book is to explain the Torah in such a way that it is scintillatingly clear. Rashi tells us that it means he explained it in 70 languages, which... Some understand as literally he took it all the languages possible and translated the Torah in that way, or it means in a way that is so clear, it is so lucid and so well known that it's un- understood to all. And he begins by saying that God wanted us to move away from the mountain. We were at the mountain, Mount Sinai, for about a year, and he says, "Okay, now it's time to enter the land and possess it—the land that God swore to our forefathers to Abraham." to Isaac and Jacob. And again, this is another veiled hint at a criticism. We could have just come take it to possess it. We didn't need spies. We didn't need scouts. We didn't need weapons. God was on our side. Of course, we are invincible if we have God worrying for us and taking care of us. And then it begins verse 9. I said to you at that time, I cannot carry you alone. Hashem, your God, has multiplied you. You're like the stars of the heavens. God should give you a blessing a thousand times of what you have today, but I cannot carry you myself, all your burdens, all your quarrels. I need to have lieutenants. I need to have aides. I need to have people who are distinguished men, who are wise, who are understanding, who are well-known to your tribes. I need aides to help me in leading the nation. So it's interesting here. The first episode that is elaborated upon, not just hinted, in the retrospective of of our Parsha is the appointment of Judges, And it tells us that, you know, the judges have to be distinguished men, people who are righteous, who are wise but also clever, people who are men of understanding, not only understanding what is said, but understanding what is not said, people who are well-known, people that have a reputation. These are the people that I was looking for. And you answered me, again, this is Moses talking to the people, the theme that you have proposed to do is good. And again, Rashi tells us this is another veiled critique. You wanted judges that you thought were manipulatable. What you should have said, Moses is hinting to the nation, is that no, we don't want judges. We want you. You're the best. You're, of course, the mouthpiece of God. You're getting the Torah in its most undulated form from God. We want to study only from you. But the real reason why, the secret reason why you wanted judges was because you thought that you could maybe toy with them, you could corrupt them, you could find ways to manipulate them to your satisfaction. So what happened? I took the your tribes and people that were wise and well-known and I appointed them leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, and leaders of tens, the officers for your tribes. There were, of course, the judges, there were the enforcers, of the judgments, this is the police state, so to speak, the people who are there to enforce the rulings of the judges. And this hierarchy, of course, we read about in the book of Exodus, this was proposed, at least in the book of Exodus, by Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, where there was this hierarchical system, every 10 people had one leader, if they had a question, they would ask him, and then every five groups of 10 would have a leader of 50, and then every two of that would have a leader of 100, and every 10 of that would have a leader of of a thousand, etc., until the most difficult questions would be presented to Moses. So this is the first idea that is talked about here at length, is the appointment of judges. So I want to maybe suggest an answer as to why specifically this story, there's a need to highlight it now, as the Jewish people are on the doorstep of entering the land. It's been 40 years. Moses is about to pass. Why is this so important? Maybe we could suggest, you know, Moses is set to hand over the reins of leadership of the nation to Joshua. There's no greater shoes to fill. The nation, and perhaps Joshua himself, may be secretly are dubious about his ability to carry the burden, to execute the role to follow Moses. And therefore Moses says, well, I too were not an invincible leader. I too said I couldn't handle it. I too had to appoint underlings and lieutenants and maybe that would inspire confidence in Joshua that he doesn't need to be the perfect leader. He has to be the best leader that he could be, but God chose him because God believes in him. He has the ability, but don't think that you have to be like Moses. Moses was perfect. Even Moses' leadership, so to speak, Moses himself in his humility is acknowledging the fact that he couldn't do it or at least he couldn't do as much as he maybe would have wanted to do, and he had to call in for some assistance. Now, it is interesting, some of these components of the the mandate of a judge are not found elsewhere in the Torah, and we do find some mitzvos here that are the guidance, so to speak, for judges. So, for example, it says over here, not to show favoritism and judgment, small and great alike, Shall you hear? Don't tremble before any man, for the judgment is God's. Any man is too difficult for you, bring to me and I shall hear it. And this is what Moses commanded the Jewish people at that time. So first of all, Moses is telling the judges to be deliberate. When you have a case, you may be tempted to say, well, this is a slam dunk case. This is easy. I know the ruling. I've seen this case before. But no, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't. Dismiss a case and say, Oh, this is not a difficult case for me. I know the answer right away. You should listen in and be deliberate in your judgment to make sure you don't make a mistake. Moreover, Rashi tells us that part of the message that Moses is committing to the Jewish people is that now, once you accept upon yourself the mantle of being a judge, you are a public servant. Once you have been committed to this role, you are no longer an individual. You are now a public servant to the people, and therefore at this time your status changes. Now it's interesting, the verse tells us, verse 17, that small and great alike shall you hear. Rashi has three different explanations as to what that means. What does it mean that, it, that a judge has to hear small and large? So the first explanation Rashi gives us is that you should treat a case involving one penny as the case involving 100 gold coins that don't say, oh, you know, this case is less important and therefore put it at the end of the docket. Instead, you treat it all equally. And I think it's interesting, you know, the Supreme Court in the United States does not operate like this. They have, you know, maybe 80 or 90 cases a year that they hear and they get to select, they get to choose which cases they want to listen. And here we see no. It's first come, first serve, so to speak, and you should not favor one over the other because ultimately you're trying to ascertain and clarify the will of God. That's your role, and you're, you're doing it in the context of a public servant. So that's the first idea we see here in Rashi, that the small cases and the large cases should be identical. The second interpretation Rashi gives us is that don't, say, you know, I have two litigants here. One's wealthy and one is, is poor. And isn't it right, isn't it appropriate to find a nice way to provide a livelihood for the pauper? And therefore, I'm going to veer, so to speak. I'm going to find justification in the pauper's position and I'm going to favor him in judgment. You may think that that's a way for you to find a respectable, dignified way to support the poor person. But no, that's against the Torah. The large and the small, the rich and the poor, should be identical. The third interpretation Rashi gives us is that don't think that I'm going to impinge on the honor of the rich person. I'll just make believe like he's justified that he wins. And then afterwards i will say, no, you really were guilty and you have to give it to the other guy. Again, you are responsible with the mission of giving Torah or of clarifying Torah for the nation. And that responsibility is sacrosanct. And therefore, you have to do the rest of your abilities. You have to judge the case on the merits and the small cases and the large cases and the rich and the poor are identical. And the Rashi tells us another powerful idea. If a person, if a judge manipulates the judgment, that in effect, they are offloading the justice to God. Because if you take from this person and you unjustly appropriate it for that person, you're actually forcing God to intervene in some cosmic way to bring the money back to where it belongs. Now, there's an interesting question here that the Ramban asks. The Ramban asks the question, you know, in the book of Exodus – there is a big role for Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, to play in appointment of these judges. Yet over here in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, he's not mentioned at all. And if he's the architect of this whole system, is isn't appropriate for him to be mentioned. Why is he not mentioned in our description, in our retelling of the organization of the building of this structure of of the legal system and the judges and he gives us three answers very interesting first of all he says that jethro was humble and would not want his accomplishments to be broadcast to all of israel so therefore to preserve the humility of of jethro it is unmentioned and then he says something very interesting he says this nation moses is 120 years old they're much younger they revere him. They don't know him growing up in Egypt. They don't even know him from the Exodus story and the Ten Blades. They know him as this angelic figure who's leading the nation. And if they find out that his father-in-law is that former priest, that former idolater from, from Midian, Jethro, and his wife is a Kuthite, maybe that they would not look too fondly upon that. And therefore the Raman tells us that a leader has to preserve his dignity. And he must not at least deliberately invoke something that his flock, whether justifiably or otherwise, may view as shameful. And finally, the Ramban tells us that really, even though this was proposed by Jethro, ultimately Moses asked God if this system was, was proper, and therefore the implementation of the scheme was not a result of the initiative of Jethro. Yes, he's given his plaudits in the book of Exodus, but ultimately when we're talking about the implementation, that is Moses in consultation with God, and that's why Jethro's role is ignored, at least over here. Now, in addition here, in verse 18, it says, I commanded you at the time all the things that you should do. And this is a little bit of a, a cryptic verse. It's not clear exactly what Moses is referring to. I command you at the time all the things that you should do. So Rashi tells us that what it's talking about, or what it's referring to over here is the ten differences that exist between monetary cases and capital cases in a Jewish court of law. The Talmud enumerates ten differences between capital cases and criminal and other civil cases. And I think going through these ten things, it is a sense of the, you know, the Jewish jurisprudence and the sensitivity that it has around the idea of capital punishment. You know, if you read the Torah, And you read the laws and the mitzvot, it seems like there's many mitzvot, at least relative to standards that we have today in the Western world, there's many mitzvot that seem to carry with it the threat of the death penalty. Yet when you learn about what the court needs to do to actually arrive at such a guilty verdict and to actually execute someone, there are draconian regulations that make it very difficult to actually dot all those I's and dash all those T's. And here we have 10 differences that exist between capital crimes and between monetary crimes in how the court has to actually go through and deliberate these cases. And that shows you that it's actually vanishingly rare for someone to be tried and be found guilty and be executed in a Jewish court law. Of course, the Talmud tells us that a Jewish court law that executes more than once every 70 years is a – bloody court, meaning they're not doing their job. Moses continues his message, and we journeyed from Choreb, we went through the entire great and awesome wilderness, and we passed the Amorite Mountains, and I said to you, have come until the Amorite mountain. that Hashem, our God, has given us. See, Hashem, your God, has placed you. The land is before you. Go up and possess it. As Hashem, God of your forefathers, has spoken to you, do not fear and do not lose resolve. The land was delivered to us on a silver platter. Again, we didn't need to have spies. We didn't need to have any weapons. God gave it to us its our inheritance. We don't need to fear them, and we don't need to lose our resolve. It is ours if we want it. But of course, the nation didn't want it. They wanted first to take the measures necessary, as if it was not a miraculous conquest, as if it was a regular military conquest. You send the, the scouts to reconnoiter the land, to do a recon reconnaissance mission and you asked, let us send men ahead of us and let them spy out the land and bring word back to us the road which we shall ascend and the cities which we shall come. And this is, of course, the episode of the spies, the people, they asked Moses, can we send men to go scout the land, to go reconnoiter the land and find out how to attack it as if it's not miraculous. And this is, of course, where the mistake begins. And Moses responds, again, this is his, all his monologue, the idea was good in my eyes. So I took 12 men, one man from each tribe, and they ascended the mountain, and they went to the Valley of Eshkol, they spied it out, they brought back the fruit, and they came back to us, and this was their message, good is the land that Hashem, your God, has given us. So a few things here. First of all, Moses here plainly states that he approved of it. You know, he's giving this retrospective of the 40 years to the Jewish people, and he is going to begin to criticize them about the episode of the spies, but he plainly states that the idea was good in his eyes. So how do you criticize the Jewish people when you yourself signed off on the plan? So actually tells us that Moses, yes, he gave approval, but he was just giving his approval to demonstrate how convinced he was that there was nothing wrong with the land in the hopes that when they see his confidence, they will drop their request to appoint spies. And he gives this wonderful parable. You have someone who's selling a donkey and the guy comes and says, okay, uh, can I try it out? Can I try your donkey and see if it's healthy? And the man says, sure. Well, can I go up the mountains? Can I go up the valleys? And he says, sure. And if you see the guy is so confident in letting you try out the donkey, you don't even need to try it out. You could sense from his confidence that the animal is sturdy. Similarly, Moses is saying, I'm so confident. We got the land. Yes, go send spies to scout it out. I'm so confident. Uh Yet, his intention was that 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 confidence would inspire confidence amongst the Jewish people. And they would say, you know what? We don't even need it. But of course, they did not do it. And then he retells a story. It's really interesting what his uh, his version of the story is, these people, the 12 scouts appointed to go inspect the land, they come back with a message, the land is very good. And the obvious question is, you know, Moses buried the lead. The most important part of the message was not the land that was good, is that the land was bad and unconquerable, a land that consumes those who live in it. Uh, a land where the people are so mighty and the cities are so unconquerable, are so formidable, Uh, yet he comes here with the message the land is is very good. And Rashi, of course, tells us that, you know, this was the message that Joshua and Caleb gave. But the obvious question is, well, yes, Joshua and Caleb, two of the 12 messengers of the 12 scouts came back with that message. The other 10 came back with a very different message. And maybe the answer is that yes, These two people, they are saying the truth. The rest of them are wrong because they're going against God. You have a million ants. They don't hold sway over one intelligent person. A billion humans don't carry any weight if they're arguing against God. So yes, the only message that Moses heard was that good is the land that Hashem, our God, gives us. It's the message, of course, of Joshua and Caleb, but it's the correct message and the people... Didn't hear it. The answer was there before him. They didn't pay attention to it. But you did not wish to ascend. And you rebelled against the word of Hashem, your God. You slandered in your tents. Because of Hashem's hatred for us, he, didn't, he took us out of the land of Egypt. He wants us to die. And you got all sad. He started crying. And of course, the consequences of this are found in verse 34. Hashem heard your the sound of your words. And he was incest. And he swore, saying, if even a man... Of these people, this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your forefathers. No one's going to see it with the exception of Caleb and with the exception of Joshua. You know, this is the second episode here in chapter one that is elaborated upon. And I would say that this is a very germane message to the nation as they're about to enter the land permanently. They were scared in the times of the episode of the scouts. And Moshe, of course, is revisiting the story at length to tell them not to make the same mistake and maybe we could even suggest that you know part of this message that Moses is giving is to be confident that it's all going to work out to be confident in this succession plan Moses to Joshua and no episode demonstrates Joshua's credentials better than his role in this story and that therefore we see that multiple times throughout the parsha Joshua's accomplishments are revisited and his role as Moses' successor and the strength given to him is expressed uh, throughout this whole, this whole monologue. And Moses continues, with me as well, God became angry because if you send, you too shall not come there. Joshua, he'll be your placement. Strengthen him, but you're not going to enter the land. This is a very puzzling verse here, verse 34. Moses is telling the nation that God became angry with him, with Moses. Because of you, because of the people, saying that because of the people, and seemingly because of the sin of the spies, Moses cannot enter the land of Israel either. Now we know that Moses was precluded from entering the land because of the sin of hitting the rock, not because of the sin of the spies. So why is Moses seemingly linking the sin of the spies, the fact that the rest of the Jewish people were precluded from entering the land, how does that connect to Moses himself? being disallowed from entering the land as a result of their sin. So several of the commentators here say a very powerful idea. They say that the sin of the spies and the fact that the Jewish people were condemned to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Moreover, the Talmud tells us the Jewish people were condemned to have the destruction of the temple and the subsequent exile, twice, from the land of Israel. All that was necessary as a result of the sin of the spies. And ergo, the sin of the spies mandated that Moses would not enter the land. Because otherwise, the punishment of crying for generations would not have been fulfilled. Very powerful idea, and we've talked about this in the past. Had Moses been at the helm of the Jewish people when they conquered the land, that conquest would have been permanent. Moses' accomplishments are permanent. And therefore, had he been at the helm when they conquered of the land, it would have been permanent. However, as a result of the sin of the spies, the Jewish people were condemned to be exiled from the land twice, destruction of the first temple, destruction of the second temple, the first commonwealth they went to Babylon, the second commonwealth was shattered by the Romans. As a result of the sin of the spies, the sin of Moses hitting the rock had to happen almost. It was mandatory for it to happen. And therefore that ensured that Moses would not lead the Jewish people into the land, and that therefore the people will not be there permanently, the conquest will not be set in stone and undoable and immutable, and therefore the conditions would be present for them to be kicked out subsequently. The Rabban also tells us, really interesting, you know, the names of the spies are not mentioned. And the reason is because Moses is not coming to denigrate individuals. He only wants to speak to the public. The public sinned. The public was punished, but it doesn't delineate the sins of the individuals or what happened to them. Subsequently, they were punished and they, they died. Those 10 scouts, the 10 spies, they died in a horrific manner. That's not the subject matter. The subject is the, the general activities of, of the community. And then it talks about what happened to the groups of people that wanted to insist after the verdict was rendered, the Jewish people have to spend 40 years in the wilderness. A group of people insisted, they went up and they were slaughtered. And the verse tells us that they were slaughtered like bees. And what does that mean? Well, she tells us just like a bee, when it strikes someone, it itself dies. So too, when these Amorites, when they struck the Jewish people, or at least that, that contingent that decided to brazenly pursue and enter in the land. When the Amorites destroyed them, they themselves died. Of course, that's a broader theme in, in Jewish history, that when when other nations attack our nation, they may have immediate success in the short term, but ultimately it is harmful for them in, in, in the long term, in the, in the big picture. So that's uh, chapter one, going through this uh, very intricate and very subtle telling of of many of the episodes that happened to the Jewish nation and their sins in the course of the previous 40 years. Chapter two is going to talk about the miraculous conquest of the fearsome kings on the east bank of the Jordan River. And again, we can maybe postulate that the reason why these parts of the story are told at length, it's... To comfort the people, to give them confidence, just as God was with us when we destroyed those seemingly unconquerable nations on the east bank of the Jordan. So, too, when we encounter the enemies on the west bank, they, too, will be easy pickings for us. We will be able to triumph over them because God is with us. But it begins... With the first nation that they encountered, that is the land of Seir. Of course, those are the descendants of Esau, of Esau. And those people, God says, no, you cannot provoke them. You cannot conquer them. If you want to go through their land, you have to pay for your food. You have to pay for your drink. They are untouchable. Why are they so untouchable? It gives us two explanations. Either because this land was apportioned to them by God. And therefore, because it's given to by God, you cannot deduct from it. And Rashi elaborates that Abraham got ten lands. The seven Canaanite lands are for the Jewish people. The land of Seir is for the other heir of, of Abraham. And that's Esau, Esau. And then Ammon and Moab, those are given to Lot. He's almost like a son to Abraham. And therefore, those, those lands also we cannot conquer. That's the first reason why we cannot conquer the land of Seir is because it's rightfully Asav's. Alternative, what she tells us is that yes, it's going to be ours, but that is for the times of the Messianic era. When Messiah comes, that's going to be our time and our opportunity and our moment to conquer the land of Seir. And indeed, the Jewish people listen. So we passed from our brothers, the children of Esau, who dwell in Seir, from the way of the Rabbah, from Elat, from Etzion Gavar, and we turned and we passed on the way of the Moabite desert. So the first nation is Esau. We don't touch them and we go around them. And the next nation is with Moab. And again, God tells us not to wage war with Moab, not to incite them into a military conflict, but we don't need to tread as carefully. And that's why Moab was so scared of the Jewish people and they hired Bill to curse them. They felt vulnerable, but we we're not allowed to conquer it. It is given to the descendants of, of Lot. And it's not part of the inheritance that we got from Abraham. And therefore, we're not allowed to conquer it. There's another interesting idea that we get over here as the narrative continues. The verse tells us that it took us 38 years for every one of the generation that left Egypt to pass away until we move on to the next destination, cross over the border of, of Moab, and to approach the people of, of Ammon. But Rashi tells us, Rashi points out a very powerful idea. It says, number one... That God hastened the death of one generation to allow their children to enter on schedule. And this is a theme that we've seen throughout the whole Torah, that sometimes when bad things happen, it really is a good thing. So that's one idea. But moreover, in verse 16 here, so it was that when the people died, God spoke to me saying, and Rashi tells us that for the duration of that 38 years, meaning from the time when the verdict was rendered that people have to die in the wilderness until they all finish dying, Moses had prophecy, but the prophecy was not really the same close prophecy that he had had previously and that he had subsequently. And that tells us, even though God was angry at the Jewish people, not angry at Moses, but it's a lesson that even Moses' prophecy was only in the merit of the Jewish people, and therefore it's a reflection of the state of the nation. You know, people ask the question today, if someone was as personally righteous as a prophet of your, would they be capable of prophecy? And here we find that the answer is that maybe, but it's contingent upon the nation as well. If the nation is not one that finds favor in the eyes of God, then the prophecy that's given to the prophets, it's also going to reflect that. It's not going to be one of closeness, one of favor, and that has nothing to do with the merits or the demerits of, of that particular prophet. So we have the nation of, of Ammon. Again, we get the same message, don't incite them in any way. This is a little bit more than Moab. Moab was like, don't make war with them. And here we find don't incite them in any way. Don't think it's part of the Abrahamic inheritance. And in verse 24, we read, well, there's another king, the king of the Amorites. And that, of course, is Sihon. And that person, we're told, that we should indeed make war with him. Rise up and cross Arnon Brook, see into your hand, I have delivered Sihon, king of Heshbon, the Amorite, and his land. Begin to possess it and provoke war with him. So, if you just read that verse, you would say, Okay, well, war is inevitable. God is instructing us to have a war with Sichon, king of the Amorites. And the very next verse, we find out what happens. I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemos to Sichon, king of Heshbon, words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. Only on the road shall I go, not straight right and left. Food shall I purchase for money as provisions, and I will eat. Who will give me water for money, I shall drink. What's going on over here? Moses was given a very clear directive by God. Go make war with Sihon. And Moses instead is sending peace overtures. Why is he extending the olive branch when God said clearly, go make war? And Rashi gives us two answers, and the Ramban gives us a third answer. Rashi tells us, That he learned from God. Before God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, he offered it to all the Gentile nations. Even though he knew that they would not accept it. Similarly, Moses took the lesson. I'm going to offer peace to Sichon, even though I know he's not going to accept it. Similarly, Rashi tells us that a second reason is that Moses said, well, God told me. That Pharaoh is not going to send the Jewish people, he's going to harden his heart. Yet God told me, nonetheless, go ask him to send the Jewish people and release them. It's futile, but I'm going to ask nonetheless. Similar over here, go make war. Yes, war will happen. War is inevitable. Still, even though it's futile, the lesson is make a peace offering first. The Ramban, he has a different answer. He says that no, that the the verses are non-chronological. Verse 24 is after verse 26. Moses first sent a peace overture that was rejected, and subsequently he was told by God, okay, go make war. The Ramban also adds here, and this is a very important insight, that all wars that we encounter with the exception of wars that are foisted upon us, our nation first offers peace. And that applies even to the seven Canaanite nations regarding whom they were told that we cannot allow anyone to survive. It has to be total victory. Still, nonetheless, we offer peace terms before we engage in in conflict. So there is a total victory over Sichon, and then Og in chapter 3, he attacks, and therefore we also go to war with him. He was not given the peace terms first because he attacked without being provoked. Moses is told by God, Not to fear him, everything that I have done to you in the war against Sichon, I'm going to do to you in the war against Og. Why was Moses initially fearful? Rashi tells us that Og was a more fearful king because he had aided Abraham in his war of the four kings against the five kings. Therefore he had those merits of, of, of that help that he extended to Abraham. And therefore Moses was concerned that maybe those merits would come to his aid, and they wouldn't be able to conquer him. Therefore, God reassures them, don't worry, don't fear them, you're going to conquer them, you're going to destroy them, like you did to Sihon, and indeed they did. We occupied his cities, there were 60 walled cities, plus many other towns, and despite the fact that he was so powerful, and he was so fearsome, and he didn't even subsist with a regular wooden bed, he needed a metal one, nonetheless... He was totally vanquished. And the Parsha concludes where Moses revisits the deal with the tribe of Ruvain and God and half of Menashe. It goes through the lands and their agreement. Again, this is another episode that is told at length. And maybe, again, we could suggest that these people were splitting off. They're not permanently joining the Jewish people they it's important to tell their story and their pledge. And the Parsha ends with another reassurance to Joshua. I commanded Joshua that I'm saying, your eyes have seen everything that Hashem your God has done to these two kings. So will Hashem do to all the kings when you cross over. You shall not fear them, for Hashem your God, he shall wage war for you. And the Parsha ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. It's the middle of the message. It's the middle of the monologue. And then Moses is going to make it very personal at the beginning of next week's parsha, where he's going to be talking about his sincere and deep and continuous and repeated requests to have the decree that he'd not enter the land annulled. So that's uh, next week. Thank you all for listening. The email is rabbiwolby at gmail.com and look forward to being to you next week.